Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Smart Cities Chronicles, your podcast for everything smart cities, action, investment, and outcomes. My name is Adam Beck. I'm host of the Chronicles and my day job, Executive Director at the Smart Cities Council for our Australia and New Zealand region. Delighted to bring you episode 91 of the Chronicles today and something a little bit different. We're going to be sharing a recording of a panel session that we facilitated as part of Digital Twin Week 2021 back in October. And what we have for you today is our moderator, Gavin Cottrell, who is Consulting Director at PCSG for Asia Pacific, moderating a session around digital by default with respect to infrastructure in Australia. And joining him as guests on the panel uh, are Meredith Hodgman, who is Associate Director of Places and Partnerships at KPMG, Richard Morrison, who is Practice Lead for ICT in Australia and New Zealand for AECOM. And our third guest is Henry O'Craglick, who is Global Director at WSP for Digital. And so this conversation follows a plenary keynote that was delivered by Romilly Maju AO, who is CEO of Infrastructure Australia, who shared earlier in this session the aspirations of the federal government in Australia adopting a digital by default approach to infrastructure delivery over the next 15 years. She spoke about the Australia Infrastructure Plan, ways in which digital and data is being embraced in the future of infrastructure planning and funding. And so this panel session is in response to that aspiration. We hope you enjoy it. It's certainly a a substantial panel session, but I think you will find it quite enlightening and indeed engaging. So sit back and listen in. Remember, if you're not subscribing to the Chronicles, you can do so. You can head to the website, smartcitieschronicles.com, or you can head to any podcast platform and just look up Smart Cities Chronicles. You'll find us there. But for now, enjoy. We look forward to also bringing you another episode soon. Thanks so much. Thanks, Adam, and thanks uh, for the opportunity to speak today. And also fantastic to see the leadership from Infrastructure Australia around the uh, digital by default. I think what I'd like to do before introducing our fantastic set of panellists here today is really just sort of make a bit of a, a summary of what we've just heard there. We've talked about data as an asset, productivity, policy standards, how construction sector contributes to 20% of GDP, uh, we've talked about in terms of where we need to go, uh, what the states and territories need to do. And I think this is what, in a minute, we'll, we'll introduce these, the, uh, the panel, how do we challenge that? What does this mean? What next? How do we get there? I think it's also worth uh, reflecting in terms of where we're at. And Ron talked about in terms of each state and territory doing our own thing and how we need to get some more standardisation uh, around that. And Romilly mentioned around Victoria with the uh, Victorian Digital Asset Strategy with Transport for New South Wales and the Queensland BIM policy. And we're also seeing a a nuanced approach in terms of digital twin with what's happening in in SAQ in terms of the New South Wales spatial digital twin, digital twin Victoria, and also the the Greater Hobart um, digital twin. So we're starting to still see this fragmentation and it's fantastic to see this, this leadership uh, from IA, which I think has been missing. But I think what's really important about how we sort of use this 40 minutes is how do we dissect this? And if i like now to bring the panellists to switch their cameras on, please, and unmute themselves. So 
As they do that, uh, we have Meredith uh, Hodgman from Associate Director Places and Partnerships from KPMG. We have Richard Morrison, Practice Lead, Information and Communication Technology, ANZ from ACOM, and Henry Okerlach from Global Director from WSP. So we have a fantastic group of panelists here. But uh, Meredith, I want to challenge you first. So we've heard some fantastic things from IA and ROM and digital by default, and it all sounds fantastic on paper, but what does this actually mean? What does this actually mean for the states and, and, and territories? So keen to get your input and what's next? What, what's next for the states and territories to take on board this digital by default? So yeah, keen to get your thoughts, Meredith. Good morning. Um, thank you, Gavin. Um, joining us all today from the Gadigal lands in uh, Sydney, the place that we now call Sydney, I should say. And I'm really excited to have just heard Romilly speak. Like, I just want to take a moment to reflect on how incredibly wonderful that was to see a CEO quote from a page number specifically, exactly knew where it was in the document, where she's going and, and exactly how it relates to the questions coming in off that panel, a really strong leadership from, from there, from Infrastructure Australia. And I, a lot of what I'd like to say probably echoes that, especially because one of my other roles is that I um, sit on the Internet of Things Alliance Australia's Smart Cities Working Group as the chair there. So those messages around agglomeration and collaboration to standardisation really resonate quite strongly with me, particularly because I think that, you know, we, we all read the skills capability report that was released last week and we understand there's a bit of a capability gap. And I think that there's a real role to play in partnering between industry and government in terms of delivering that skills up that we need. But your question, Gavin, and to the point and why we're here today, really, I think, is just to underscore this opportunity for governments now to really reap the benefits of this economic success and social inclusion that is promised from smart infrastructure. And for them, there's a double, there's a double benefit here, really. You're going to get a better investment out of the infrastructure that we already have. So really maximising the assets that we own already. And then those flow-on effects that come into other parts of the economy. And I'm talking about, you know, the e-health and the education and the broader things that are all enabled by digital infrastructure, which ultimately needs to be embedded into our existing infrastructure as a bit of a critical backbone, if you will. So we know it's a big opportunity, but we also know it's a really big task to comprehend and to deliver in any speed that's meaningful. So this upskilling of industry and this collaboration between government and industry becomes quite important because it's a really new area. You know, we see, obviously see in some countries have a head start on this, notably, of course, the UK. Um, and in the increments, we certainly see it in parts of Europe and in Canada. But there is not a lot of policy guidance out there to look at. There's not a lot of use cases out there to, to really learn from or to apply. So how we approach it now and how we get tactical about delivering this becomes quite meaningful. Obviously, we, we can hear a bit of a call here for a government or politicians to have leadership and vision in this space. That's that's a really big one, you know, and that's one that we can't always plan for and we can't always rely on. So we do have to look to our departments and we do have to look to our industry to have a look at where, where we can be meaningful and tactical. So I think I would say in summary, it's a call for government to be brave about developing a vision and investing in training that's required to understand and comprehend that vision. Call for government to be brave about trialling, launching and iterating our learnings. We don't always share our lessons learned. We do too often try to recreate that wheel. We don't often enough go and have a look at what other jurisdictions are doing here in Australia and then saying, how can we do what they did, but perhaps iterate it and deliver it better. But particularly important because it's how we will see a more rapid approach to the development and adoption of policy guidelines and standards. And then I think as a priority really to underscore Romilly again is just the swiftness and urgency that's required to review the existing barriers to digital infrastructure valuing digital assets, 
particularly with inside our existing business cases and our procurement guidelines, templates, frameworks. And, and I say that because I think that realistically speaking, what the way we're looking at data and we're valuing data has just going to have so many more flow-on effects in that manner. So thanks, Gavin. Yeah, brilliant, Meredith. That's that's great. You're really key points there. And I think that leadership perspective is something is critical from a, a top-down perspective and something that's been missing within our uh, political landscape with a few exceptions. Henry, I'm keen to ask, get your point on the same question. What, what does this mean in terms of the states and territories? If I'm a, a bureaucrat sitting in a department within one of the states and territories and I'm reading this document, what does this mean? What do I need to do the next if I'm sitting as a bureaucrat in the Northern Territory or in South Australia or WA? What do I, what do I need to do with this report? Thanks, Kevin. Good morning, everyone. I think one of the issues is that we start off with policies at a fairly high level, and it seems to me that the further they trickle down through an organisation, the more confusing it gets. And, you know, I work for a company that responds to a lot of tenders. We've implemented a lot of uh, smart city implementations and IoT implementations. And I think we have a fundamental issue with digital literacy, particularly around concepts like digital twins and VIM. And I think there's still a hell of a lot of confusion out there. And things like digital twins are very much need to be contextualized. They mean different things to different people within different contexts. So I think one of the things that I think we need to look at before we start talking about how we implement it is how we educate people and improve the level of digital literacy so that we end up getting better results. Otherwise, we end up with some pretty suboptimal products coming out in response to procurement tenders. And so I think, you know, we really need to do some preliminary work on getting people's knowledge and understanding up to speed. Yeah, absolutely, Henry. And I think uh, we talked about this on, on air before, uh, yeah. before I think we talked about the need for capacity capability. And I think what's really important, it's not only from a, a delivery perspective is, but what we're lacking is in terms of strategic capacity and capability that, that the people that can deliver and develop business cases and strategies to help the organisations within public and private in terms yeah. of help set this policy and, and, and deliver that. And Kevin, I just want to pick up one of the points Romley made was about um, innovation and experimentation and proof of concepts. But often, and we're seeing this more and more, procurement processes from governments are seeking more and more to shift risk away from government and onto the contractor or the engineer or the designer. And that really negates any ability to do anything innovative or proof of concept. So I think we, you know, if we want proof of concepts and if we want to develop our skills in implementing digital infrastructure, then we need to be have a slightly different procurement approach and one that's perhaps a little bit more welcoming of experimentation and proof of concepts. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we've seen some examples with the NEC contracts in terms of that shared uh, risk yeah. and in terms of to reach the objectives that, uh, that govern. So absolutely, procurement is, is totally key. So Richard, last but not least, in terms of keen to get from your perspective, from what, what would you see in terms of the main sort of drivers that states and territories, departments need to think about? And perhaps not just thinking about the CapEx world, but also thinking about more, more of a broader uh, life cycle. So yeah, keen to get your thoughts, Richard. Yeah, good morning, everyone, and 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 thanks, Gavin. I think building on the last two, um, you know, views, you know, really innovation happens where we have transparency and standards. And I think one of the things that we're 
really missing at the moment is the key elements and building blocks around the standards from a, a digital twin perspective. And that'll enable us to deliver consistently. It'll enable government to understand the product that they're going to, to receive. It'll also enable smaller firms to innovate. We see a lot of the, the fire of innovation happen with smaller startup elements where they're able to take these ideas and rapidly build prototypes and models and deliver, you know, new products and solutions that, that can meet that sort of challenge. So I think, you know, from our perspective, there, there needs to be still that common voice that I think um, was talked about. Um, you know, we need to get together and build those standards. I know ISO and, um, you know, particularly um, a lot of work has been done uh, over the last five years by the UK government. But being able to then deliver that into an Australian context and have states and territories take that up is really important. As we move, though, from what we, we're seeing from a procurement perspective, so we're procuring capital infrastructure, uh, it's a capital spend, but really where the innovation dividend is in the, is in the operational infrastructure is that delivering of data is valuing data. And, you know, that's the biggest piece of the digital twin. Where, and where is that? What, what are we building in that environment? Where is it getting delivered into? You know, is there a national model? Is there a state model? Who has access to that? How, how is it able to be accessed? And, you know, how do we value that data? Really important questions that I don't think we've answered yet. Yeah, absolutely, Richard. Yeah, spot on. I think data as an asset is becoming a bit of a, a cliche term at the, at the moment. I think everyone's sort of talking about it at the moment, but not necessarily moving that needle forward. We've been lucky enough in our UK operations dealing with uh, with Highways England, where they've actually had a cultural shift by actually putting data on a balance sheet. And what that's actually shifted is in terms of not just from a technical perspective, but it's got previously non-data people, digital people, now realising that I need to report on this so it actually becomes part of my role. So we're actually starting to see more of a cultural shift for companies like Highways England by getting some value of assets digitally and physically. And I think what would be really keen for, for us to sort of dissect now really is what does that mean really for data as an asset? So Henry, keen to get your input there. What, what does it actually mean that thing? And how can people actually, organisations think about achieving that here? I, th I think the way to look at this is really from a, a financial and an accounting perspective. I mean, we've recognised things, you know, forms of intellectual property such as patents and copyrights or trade secrets as a legitimate category of an intangible asset to be recognised on a balance sheet. And, and it seems to me data is really just an extension of that, perhaps one that is under-recognised at the moment, but doesn't seem a bridge too far to move from what was already well-recognised as intangible assets into data. Of course, it raises some of the same issues that we already get with intangible assets. How do you value them? What methodology do you use and who do you get to value them? And then um, issues like capitalization of, of assets, of intangible assets, becomes a really, really interesting issue to look at. So I think from a, an accounting point of view, we're not all that far away in being able to deal with that. And in, in fact, that has many benefits because as you said, Gavin, it then gets other people in the organization involved. So you, you start putting a monetary value on it. So it gets the attention of people who perhaps didn't look at digital assets quite in that way previously, and that enhances their value all by itself within a company. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is part of the challenge that we see in when we're developing business cases and strategies for government departments is digital or, or data is very much a technical narrative within organisations. And it isn't that much of a strategic narrative across the majority of government departments and agencies. So Meredith Keane, as one of the, the larger accounting firms in the in the land, keen to sort of get your sort of view about where you sort of see the sort of the Venn diagram becoming from sort of smart digital data and sort of data as an asset narrative. Keen to get your input onto this as well, please. Thanks, Gavin. For a little tiny bit of context, I should add, I am very new to my, my new current role at KPMG, so only three months in. So I hope that you'll all be able to join for Julian's session as well. He can speak very strongly to KPMG's core um, capabilities in those regards. But I certainly think that we're at the point now in terms of business cases and business modelling where we are we are getting those inquiries and where we are looking at ways in which we can start to adopt meaningful uh, methodologies and standards that are applied not just within the projects that we're looking at in the business cases that we're looking at, but certainly to their benefits, um, you know, nationally and the ability to be able to scale those and impact scale. I think probably, you know, we in this Infrastructure Australia forum in the context, we tend to look, think a lot about major infrastructure projects, but um, I think, you know, we have seen this proliferation of quite small projects around the country. And I think there's a role for the bottom up examples as well. And many people have been trialing these types of activities um, and pilots, little tiny, small examples, whether it's dare I say, in curbside valuations and or, you know, various parking type applications, which I suspect we're all a little bit tired by, but lessons from those are really integral in terms of how we can actually then make sure that we're growing those projects in much bigger way. And that's going to do better things for us in terms of attracting investors. And so, you know, we look at how do we better utilise the capital that we have available at the moment in infrastructure projects? How do we better, better utilise our assets? And this data question, again, the value of data right is ultimately what will not only bring us better investors, but also help us to deliver new business models so that we can get more revenue out of it. So I think in answer to your question, Gavin, you know, we need to take a very structured approach to having a look at the existing methodologies that are out there and actually have a look at how they are applied on various sectors and various state jurisdictions so that we can be a bit meaningful with them. Devin, you mentioned about business case there and it's actually probably the one thing I've been really heartened about over the last couple of years is the the amount of business case work that's actually being out in the market and government departments are, are seeking advice in that area where we didn't necessarily have that level of business case advice coming out from sort of smart cities, building information modeling, et cetera. With digital twin, we're really starting to see especially around the cities, around economic development. Uh, they, they want to bounce back after COVID. And they're really wanting to understand, well, look, I've spent a heap of, of cash on these uh, bottom-up initiatives, as, as you quite rightly call them, whether it's smart parking, smart lighting. Yeah. How can you federate, visualize, and connect those data sets together so you can start to get a better understanding yeah. um, of that? So can I, I add the, very quickly to that, Gavin? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Just just to sort of iterate a little bit, we're talking about how do we get tactile, how do we implement this with meaning? And I think that it's there's a real role for government in this business case area because the business case will ultimately determine the delivery model that you take, that you choose to take. So if you overlook the role of digital in the business case, we're setting the procurement up for failure from the beginning. Absolutely. And I think in terms of what's vitally important uh, and in terms of getting traction is each government department, each city will have strategic objectives. 
They will also have their own services. What's really important is to actually map how those use cases can actually bring those strategic objectives to life. Because if you're unable to do that, it's pretty uh, pretty difficult for your business case to move any further because you haven't been able to intrinsically demonstrate clearly and articulately how digital and data could inform and bring to life your strategic objectives. So you're spot on um, their, their narrative. I think what's um, keen to also get from the, the group as well is what challenges do we see? So Richard, what challenges do you see that organizations, whether departments or cities, in developing their digital business cases or strategy? What, what are the main challenges, do you think, in terms of IA's got this flag on the hill? Okay, guys, you all need to do all this. What okay, great. I'm a department that hasn't moved there. What what are the challenges do you think that, that they need to think about overcoming? Yeah, no, thank you, Gavin. I think that there are a number of different challenges, um, but digital by default, obviously, people have been working towards that for a number of years, but what we're still seeing is siloed industries. We're also seeing silo, silos in the sectors. We don't necessarily have uh, common data standards at the moment. What we're sort of uh, seeing is there's a lot of disruption in the current business model you know, with delivery of digital, you know, the rise of, as I've mentioned previously, maybe smaller digital consultancies are able to look at parts of that transition from CapEx to OpEx and build tools that are able to, to be used. And so what it's doing is it's changing the way contractors and consultancies work together. And, you know, that's really sort of disrupting, I guess, the current supply chain. And what are the opportunities as well, Richard? In terms of we talk about the challenge, what, what, what do you see the opportunities are? Well, I think the opportunity is that, um, it, you know, as we move forward, there are some innovations that I think we'll talk about a little bit later in this, in this session that will hopefully drive the costs of delivering digital twins down. It will also uh, enable us to work more closely together. And I think we, we need to find a new, a new business model of working uh, with data. Uh, and, and I think largely over the last number of years, we've done that. You know, we, we haven't, uh, you know, in the past, we might have charged for models, we might have, you know, priced them in different ways. Now we, uh, you know, if you look at some, something like Office 365, where you've gone device agnostic, we almost need to be consultancy agnostic or contractor agnostic on this data, where, you know, every uh, piece of the supply chain is, is um, you know, shaping it in one way or form. And, you know, we're not necessarily pricing, a, you know, to do that. It's just a byproduct of what we do in our service. Is that almost like a twin as a service? Yeah, I think so. I think we need to move away from where we currently are if we're going to deliver these, you know, at scale into, you know, perhaps what might be a national digital twin or a state-based digital twin. You know, there's a real change in, in the way we have to deliver. So, Henry, where are you seeing the exemplar? Pieces. So we've talked about a lot about risks, we talked about challenges, we talked about data and as an asset. Keen to sort of get real tactile there in terms of yep. where we where are we seeing stuff actually happening and, and leading the pack in your opinion. Yeah, well, I'll start. I'll start off by saying that I think we need to get away from these little point solutions of smart parking and smart bins and smart security and smart lighting, which is where most of the activity in smart cities have been, and that's largely driven by one-off government grants. 
And, you know, that raises a question about where the OPEX is going to come from. Because once that one hit wonder from the governments have petered out, you're then relying largely on local governments to have the funds to be able to sustain these. I think the things that I'm seeing that are really, really interesting, I think make this a whole lot more sustainable is looking at it from an open standards, open source data perspective rather than individual point solutions that tend to be proprietary. Because the real magic here is not in those single point solutions. It's getting data from many, many different places and combining them together so that you can make data-driven decisions that are informed by data. And you can't do that unless you have a common platform. So City of Newcastle, and I don't know if they're present today or not, but they've gone down very much that path. And you don't get that sugar hit of, oh, we've got smart parking in next week or smart bins in next week. But what you do get is an underlying enduring platform that enables you to plug those things in and make use of them. And even better, it makes you vendor agnostic so that you can, you're not held to ransom by a particular proprietary vendor. So I think that's, that's sort of, I think, one of the best things I've seen that's happened. The city of Newcastle. Okay. And so, Meredith, what about from your perspective, where are you seeing a, an exemplar case study or in terms of what, what's actually happening in the ground? I appreciate you've only started with KPMG three months ago, so it doesn't necessarily have to be a KPMG project, but to where are you seeing a, a sort of an exemplar uh, approach to digital and data? So um, I've been wheeling out this example a fair bit lately. Um, Adam and I had the fortune of visiting the city of Dijon in France a little while ago. And I think from the CapEx OPEX discussion, it's just a case study that's really worthwhile unpacking sometimes because, you know, it's a conglomeration of 23 municipalities in an area inside France that actually came together. So first of all, it has this governance piece down pat where there's a layer of government that's agreed to procure and organise together, which is no small feat. Um, but what was really interesting about that Dijon project from the ability to use CapEx and OPEX is that they took the time to get it right in the very beginning. I believe it was delivered by a partnership of firms, including um, Suez and Capgemini. But they, they really they took four years in that pre-procurement phase to get, the, get, the, get it right. And they've only just started recently moving into actually deciding what they're going to do with their data. And there is... It's one of the rare projects we see that's a government-led project where they're actually sharing their insights and sharing their lessons learned around how they have actually been able to get their ROI. They've already like been able to go back and ask for more money because they've been able to demonstrate exactly how much that it actually has brought to the table and how much that they've saved. And they've already been able to reinvest all those savings into their actual community. So, I mean, and I, I bring that one up because I've been doing a piece of work for the G20 Smart Cities Alliance which is facilitated by the World Economic Forum and of which the city of Newcastle is actually a lighthouse city to have a look at various model policies for a variety of things. And there's a few different cities in Australia that are involved. And they've recently launched one around a dig once policy and open notification policy. But the work that we've been doing lately has been focused on smart PPPs. So this hunt for case studies, this hunt for use cases has just been global and it's been rife. And, you know, it's not an easy one to fix. They're really not out there. We're, we're pretty much relying on, on hypotheticals. So, I mean, I just go back to Romwell's comments around working with industry bodies here because I think there are lots of examples in Australia where people are actually putting these things to good use, but we're not seeing them publicly. We're not, we don't have, we can't point to them, we can't point to the ROIs, we don't have them clearly available or easily available. And, and if we do have them, they might be vendor-specific yeah. patterns. Why, why do you think that is? Why? 
Is it we're too humble? Is in terms of we're not incentivized to share? Well, I think it's two things. I think it's three things. One is that uh, it's government's tendency to not want to fail publicly, first of all. Nobody wants to be on the front page of the Herald Sun with their failed infrastructure projects, so they're not likely to want to, to do that. But two, um, to an interesting point that Romley made as well about the recommendation for Treasury to lead a lot of this reform is that we tend to look at it purely from the infrastructure lens only and only an infrastructure lens, if not a vendor lens, whereas actually the use cases that are particularly useful for like our digital twin scenarios are going to be health and education and, you know, and transport. So, I mean, it, it really comes down to governance for me, uh, governance and, and I'll throw it to this group here of um, participants that we have to to share the use cases that you do have with your various and relevant peak bodies, IOTAA if you'd like. And I think that pulling together some of these real live examples is going to really help us to better advocate for it. Flush them out. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Right, so what do we think five years from, from now? So Richard, if I have a, a bit of a crystal ball, we've got this IA, we'll look back on this digital by default. Um, we've got, SEQ Digital Twin, we've got Digital Twin Victoria, we've got New South Wales Spatial Digital Twin, everyone's doing digital stuff. Where are we going to be in five years, do you think? I think uh, what Adam mentioned around the Olympics as, as well, but keen to sort of get your view of what does success look like in, in five years' time for you? I think there are two, two elements to that, but my view is that digital by default will lead us to a standardised automated design level so uh, you know that's one piece of the digital twin uh, and then the other is obviously the platform view of where that live data is going and how it's being used for you know actionable insights but um, you know on the design element our, our role as designers will move to the most high value and creative things so in five years that will look very different the repetitive and calculation based tasks will be automated. And so, you know, there's already some significant productivity enhancing steps in automated design, which is possible now, you know, the compute platforms there, uh, but the uniform standards are not. So currently that's a competitive advantage that firms who've invested in, in automated design are, you know, using to uh, compete against each other. But it will lead us to challenge the role of the designer and make us question what do people actually do in the design process once all of the repetition and uh, you know calculation based tasks are removed so once that takes hold I think things will move very quickly um, the question really is around the speed of the moves um, and how quickly we can get you know a level of standardization uh, you know we've seen you know CAD has moved to BIM and BIM to computation uh, and then to parametric design. And so it's that next piece of automated design. In terms of actionable insights and, and use of live data in, you know, the operation of an asset, I think that's going to be, you know, a very interesting process. Uh, I think, as you say, you know, data on the balance sheet, you know, maybe we're five to eight years behind perhaps the UK in that, in that regard. So I'll be really interested in what the other panellists think about that. Yeah, thanks, Richard. So Henry... Rich has done a great job in terms of providing from a, a CapEx perspective. Where do you see the sort of the, maybe the more broad bringing in the OPEX and service delivery as well? So cast your, uh, your crystal ball, please. Yeah, I, I, I suspect that in five years' time, we're still going to be just talking about how fragmented the scene is between different states. I mean, if we look at New South Wales with smart infrastructure policy, which is quite specific, quite prescriptive in what it wants, 
in, and that's mandated for all projects over $10 million. In Victoria, you've got a digital asset strategy, which isn't quite as prescriptive and doesn't actually mandate anything. So this makes it really challenging from a delivery perspective. You know, when you're a, a national or global organisation, it means your responses in different states are fundamentally different because of those mandated requirements. And I can't really see that sorting itself out in five years. I mean, it's the nature of our federation that causes this federation, that causes this fragmentation. And we can see that across many, many sectors, not just this one, not just digital. But I think, you know, if I'm more optimistic, I think probably in the 10-year time frame, we'll probably see a much higher degree of standardization. It'll have to be because industry craves efficiency and certainty and standardization. And so industry will push for it because governments don't seem to be able to coalesce on a particular view and mandate that view on a national basis. As much as Infrastructure Australia would like to do that, they can encourage, but they're ultimately not responsible, it's the states. So I think, I think you know, probably a more optimistic in the 10 year timeframe. There's a capability or maturity across the eyebodies as well. And I think um, it, it, it's clear to, to see there's difference in terms of uh, awareness or, or around that. So that's an, an evolving piece. Yeah. But I think that's a that's going to be an interesting thing. I think also Meredith, keen to get your point on where do you think we're going to be in five years' time, and maybe just in addition to that is in terms of what needs to happen to to meet what we think is going to happen in, in five years' time. Um, I tend to agree with Richard in that the ballpark around eight to nine years behind. For me, success in smart infrastructure will come, the indicator for me will be on equity. Is it actually just in our capital cities or is it in our regions? Is it us as a nation? How is that, you know, being delivered? And I think there are two main blockers to that. And when we address those blockers will ultimately impact our timeline for success. So if we were to address these blockers this year, maybe in five years we might be somewhere. But if we don't address these blockers in the next 24 months, then we're looking at a very, very different future path. And, and those two blockers are firstly around governance. So, you know, whether we're going to harness the opportunities that have been provided by the creation and the establishment of National Cabinet and the ministers, the digital ministers um, group that sits underneath that, um, whether or not states and territories lead by, or take the example from Department of Customer mm -hmm. Service in New South Wales or infrastructure's recommendation, infrastructure strategy's recommendation for a central agency like Treasury to lead some of this, whereas you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be driven by the infrastructure um, sector. It could be, but it's up to, you know, everyone can cut it their own way or not. So we need to get those governance mechanisms in place quite quickly because I think the other barrier that we have, sort of the elephant in the room in many conversations, and I, I come at this from an IOTAA perspective around the importance of including real-time information into our spatial modelling and, and digital twins, um, and that's around reform of the ICT sector whether that's around the creation and establishment of a meaningful shared infrastructure sector market, so like actually having the requirements in place that encourages various different providers to have a healthy and flourishing um, ecosystem in that, but also more broadly speaking around the service delivery minimum standards for internet in Australia and how we can actually get fast, high-speed and reliable connectivity in places that will benefit the most from digitally enabled infrastructure. So we all know that that business case for regional you know, ICT delivery is just almost non-existent. And so consequently, we are seeing a really slow uptake at that state level because it's a really hard question to, to, to challenge. And without those governance mechanisms in place, 
with a meaningful collaboration and actual replication and, you know, standardisation can be driven and mandated, then it'll just be patchy. And, of course, that's a, that's a federal problem. Too. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned a very good thing around leadership. So sort of Minister Dominello, he's quite rightly lauded in terms of his, his leadership. But I, I, I do challenge that because we laud Dominello in terms of his leadership. But effectively, he's, he's there doing his job, providing a better service to the public. Isn't that what all ministers should be should be doing? And he's doing it by his awareness of digital and data. And I, I'll put this to the wider group is, do we need to get that leadership? Do we need to get a, a domino equivalent in each state and territory for us to, to move forward? So yeah, keen for the panel to, to jump in here. Do we need that superstar minister to drive this? Or are we gonna continue on our, our merry way at the moment? I'm, I'm happy to talk to that one. I think we do, actually. I think, you know, whatever criticisms you might or might not level at Dominello, he has success, succeeded in raising the profile of digital and being a terrific public advocate for digital. And I think that's raised the profile and people's awareness of it. That can only be a good thing. I can't see any downsides here at all. And, you know, um, I'm in Melbourne and I'd love to see someone like that down here. Do we think why haven't we got more dominoes? Is there is there a view from uh, Richard? So have you got a view why there's there's not more minister of digital superstars? I think it's probably um, you know just the the people who aspire to being um, in politics. You know, there's certain type of characters, and um, you know, Dominello is a, a good fusion between you know understanding the issues associated with digital and knowing how to connect with people who can, you know, not only deliver, uh, because remember, uh, you know, in public life, there are um, a lot of risk around running technology projects. Many technology projects, particularly big ones, have a history of significant failure. So being able to put your credibility on the line and saying, I'm going to go and fix this particular issue and then deliver uh, a credible solution that people can use, you know, like the the digital driving license and you know like the the service new south wales apps um you know i think that that takes quite a lot of courage to to do those sorts of things and that's probably why we don't have uh many in in that uh respect yeah it's interesting isn't it in terms of how we don't we don't have as many leaders in in, in this space which we which we quite clearly need and i think we have to go back to turnbull how he was uh, when he went around talking about productivity gains and efficiencies through digital things and that didn't necessarily resonate in some parts of the of, of the, the country because it might constitute in terms of maybe job production uh, etc so it becomes a bit of a, a political hot potato but Meredith what do you what's your view on this is in terms of what what do you think is it is it around the same things the others have mentioned around risk around ministers don't want to put their head above the parapet in terms of in this space or is it a case of Dominoes just gets this and sees this as part of things moving forward in terms of from a political and bureaucratic uh, perspective? Um, look, I mean, I do think leadership is critical, and I, you know, I often will throw that out there. And vision, particularly, the, like the, you know, having the courage to have a, a vision that's not been solidified. But it's not essential because we've now had the, the benefits of some of the lessons that have been learnt here. So, you know, there are now policies and processes in place that can be copied and mirrored. And a good example of that would be the mechanism that the Department of Customer Service and under Victor Dominello's leadership created by 
going to cabinet and getting approval and coordination and agreement for having a certain proportion of all of the ICT budgets of all of the departments cordoned off. So, you know, health, transport, et cetera, still your money, still your budget, but when you want to do ICT spend, you've got to come to me and I'm going to check to make sure nobody else is already doing that or nobody else already has one so that we're not duplicating or replicating. And if you had a look in the, um, the digital economy strategy that came out as part of last year's budget, we'll see that the federal government has now mirrored that approach. So whilst the federal government's only actually given about the same amount of money to the digital economy as the New South Wales government has, um, they are actually learning from and benefiting from these levers that are being created here already. And I would say more broadly speaking that certainly in this post-COVID context, the modernisation of government is rapidly, rapidly folding, folding out for us, um, driven in, in no small part by changes in consumer demand. So, you know, we're all like as individuals, as citizens, as people, we all have very different expectations now about how both government and infrastructure will service us. So consequently, that's actually a really big and very easy lever, low hanging fruit if you're a politician and you want to get elected now, like this is what the people want. As we're coming towards the close here, we've been very government top down. What does this mean? Keen to sort of sort of summarise what you think your biggest challenge over the next year is in terms of we, we come back next year for Digital Twin Week again next year. Emery, what's what's your what's WSP's biggest things keeping you up at, at night around this digital space? Yeah, that's that that's an easy one. It's um, lack lack of uh, talent, really. I mean, um, I think this is largely a function of of COVID, but across both our digital practices and our traditional engineering practices, we are struggling to find talent. And I think the demand is certainly there and, and there's demand across the board, but we, are, we really can't find enough people to do the work. And I think that's starting to cause us to do things like working much closer with universities and getting graduates in and even people that are midway through their course and sort of, you know, training them up to join us when they do graduate because um, there's just such a lack, lack of options at the moment. And I think that's going to continue for quite some time. It's something that Romilly mentioned as well. And I think that's just going to be a huge issue for us. It's a real barrier to advancing digital or engineering for that matter at the moment. So do you see that as an opportunity to, with obviously the COVID restrictions in terms of bringing external capability in to, to fill those roles, do, do, does WSP see that as an opportunity to perhaps? Absolutely. And, and we're, do, we're doing two things. We're, we've gotten a bit more relaxed, I suppose, about people not necessarily having to be in Australia. And so we've been uh, recruiting people in Eastern Europe through WSP in Eastern Europe. And as I said, we've been stretching our legs a bit and providing our own training for people, I think, starting to grow our own, which sort of harks back to a much earlier era um, when companies did that as a matter of a course and invested a lot more in training and in a way it's forcing us to relook at what we want from our people and our future leaders our graduates and invest in that and I think that's not a bad thing yeah absolutely well outcomes challenges comes opportunities doesn't it yes. I think that's you get you're forced to be more creative you're forced to think a lot harder and that's a good thing yeah 100 percent and Richard from an ACOMS perspective uh, is it down similar lines around capacity and capability or is yeah, it anything else in terms of um, major challenges from from, from yourself? It, it is around both of those elements. I mean, there, there are two, two aspects to that. I mean, one, we do have global design centres. So over the last probably three to four years, we've had a, 
a larger push to to use our global design centers um, and they're in offshore locations and but bring them into you know our team so that they're you know effectively functioning you know as part of the wider team and pre-covid we were actually flying them into australia and getting them you know familiar with the project as well um, just so that they were embedded but you know as you're probably aware um, some of our infrastructure projects particularly those around defence and many in Victoria in health um, require, uh, you know, boots on the ground or, or people in those local markets to be employed. And so that puts pressure on the local teams. And so we've, we've taken a much more of a partnering approach. So we'll, uh, at the start of a project bid, we may call up WSP or, or KPMG or other, other firms and, and look to to provide a, a, a holistic offering to, to government to um, you know, provide that certainty and assurance on delivery. And then again, it's finding that next level of talent. Um, so hopefully as we open up, you know, being able to bring people in from the UK, and I've also been finding people in the US uh, as well to, to come across and, and try and transfer those skills. Um, the, the other aspect I think though is, is that getting people to volunteer time um, to, to these sorts of causes, sitting on boards, um, sitting in standards committees from a practical perspective, trying to make these standards workable across the board is really important. So I'd say to the people um, tuning into this panel, um, you know, that's really where we need, you know, some of your time. Uh, you know, they're not, they're not paid positions, but, you know, they're, they're certainly worthwhile. You'll get a lot out of that networking and uh, you'll be contributing to the industry. Yeah, absolutely. And I think good, good point you made there about in terms of collaboration and what I think what we find with a lot of government organizations is not one company has all the skills to give the, the right answer to, to the client so what we're, we're starting to see a lot more now sort of that cross collaboration where key domain expertise is brought to the client as opposed to perhaps having a more patchy in terms of capabilities so I think that's that shared approach is becoming more and more relevant and prevalent. And we're definitely seeing that, especially within the business case and strategy around the digital twin space. Meredith is keen to get your point from a KPMG perspective. Obviously, you're three months in now, so you're working out your plan in terms of where do you see your next? So we get to digital twin next week. Mm. So, hey, Meredith, how's it going? How was the last year? What, what, what do you think your your biggest challenge for, from, from your perspective is going to be moving forward for, for 2022? Well, Gavin, we're quite lucky at the moment. We're very well positioned. Uh, KPMG has just stood up a brand new division called Infrastructure Assets and Places, where we've consolidated our infrastructure offering into a, into a whole new pillar. So that, and that is very new. That's newer than I am actually within the firm. And that allows us to really tap into and coordinate our um, existing capabilities around a very clear offering because we can see that the market's struggling with that, particularly around those coordinating at state government level and, and trying to bring together these scalable projects from the major infrastructure perspective. But the firm also has um, a really strong uh, global infrastructure network, which we draw on down into that pillar. And in particular, we've been building up various capabilities around virtual global ideation to support that. And as we division itself solidifies, you'll see a little bit more of that offering. But what it's also allowed us to do, I think, sort of speaking to this notion of, you know, remote working a little bit better is that rather than focusing on a more jurisdictional approach and um, working within our own teams, we can actually take a more of a national nationally cohesive approach to the way that we're delivering and dealing with our work. So a good example of that is uh, Julian Watts, who you'll all hear a little bit more from 
throughout the week. He's based in Victoria, but now we can actually leverage him more nationally. So a lot more uh, FaceTime with Julian, but more broadly as well, just really bringing that global expertise down to the ground. So look, we are we do consider ourselves to be quite excited by the challenges that are out there because we think it's a great opportunity to actually come together and, and to make change and is a, a small sector now. If I was to look ahead, I would probably say, this is um, my own take, is how do we come together as, a, as an industry to grow the opportunity? So not just to deliver discrete projects, because we can and we should, but actually how are we going to grow that sector beyond just one project here and one project there to actually make it a movement that impacts and affects much more broadly? Like the capabilities of, of the digital twin you know, varieties that are out there aren't just limited to infrastructure. So how are we actually being cohesive and bringing those all together for the nation? Yeah, absolutely. And this is where obviously the Smart Cities Council provide a fantastic opportunity to, to bring industry players together from all sizes and uh, and all strengths and, and, and weaknesses. I think something I'm, I'm quite buoyed about is the fact that no one's talked about technology as a challenge, which uh, which is, I think, is a good a good thing. But Henry, from your perspective, just on the the tech perspective, do you think the technology market is, is here now to support digital twin? Or are we still miles away from, from actually bringing that to actual reality? We're doing a lot of business case, like you said, pilot projects, proof of concepts, but we're still nowhere near in terms of implementing digital twin, like we see on Highways England, High Speed 2, Deutsche Bahn, Hochbahn in, in Europe. Do, do we think that the technology stack is is ready to, to do what we need to do with our digital twin vision? I think it largely is. There's still a way to go. I think the main issue is really interoperability. You know, from a technology perspective, the industry is dominated by two main players, Autodesk and Bentley, and you're either in one camp or the other and trying to get them to communicate, I'm sure Richard will talk about this as well, is quite difficult. And so unlike a lot of other areas in technology that have developed to have a more open standards, higher inter interoperability levels and gravitating towards open source, the AEC sector has been characterised by the dominance of two a duopoly, basically. And that is both a good thing and a bad thing. It gives you a degree of standardisation if you stick in that camp, but it takes away any notion of interoperability and, and limits innovation to what those product vendors see as they're offering to the market based on their feedback from customers and whatever they determine are the right timescales in which to implement new features and functions. So it's kind of a mixed bag at the moment from my point of view. Um, it also means that the AEC sector is largely held to ransom by these companies. And that this has been, I'm not saying anything new here, there's been many letters in the public, particularly in the UK, around this particular issue. But, you know, it's fundamentally unhealthy to be have a duopoly controlling our sector. And so there's been lots of discussions about this. So to me, it's a bit of a mixed bag. It is an interesting one around the technology-led approach in this digital twin space. Richard, what's, what's your view? We're not necessarily just talking about building information modeling, but that ability, that capability to visualize, connect, integrate, analyze, and simulate data. Are we there from a sort of a, a digital twin sort of vision there? Do we think the technology is there? Oh, I don't think we're there, um, but we're certainly, um, you know, the, the, the tools and platforms that we uh, have access to are probably more capable than what we're using them for. 
Um, and so, you know, that, that those will develop as we push them harder or use them, you know, more widely. Um, I, I think, you know, Henry's point, um, those particular two vendors are not very quick at, um, you know, implementing their roadmap either. And so when you go back to those sort of design type issues, um, they're very, very slow, um, you know, at implementing something that, say, you know, one of our, um, you know, big tech um, type platforms would implement overnight to in response to a user, uh, you know, requirement of the size of, of which, say, Henry and, and our companies are. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think tech is probably not really um, uh, the, the, the issue for us in Australia and New Zealand. I, I, I don't think so at this point. I, I really think that we're not pushing it hard enough uh, at this point. So is the, the market ripe for a new player to come in and blow these uh, guys out of the, the water in terms of the big two, in terms of um, bring some, a new player in? Is, are we ripe for that? We, we talk, we've talked about this for a long time in this industry about Google and other sort of uh, players coming into the market. Are we, are we ripe for that? I think one of the interesting things we're seeing is the use of gaming engines, things that like uh, Unity and Unreal, which have traditionally dominated in the gaming sector, now being used to do things like uh, virtual reality and augmented reality, and even you know visualization of digital twins. So there are, there are some interesting changes going on, but they're coming from perhaps slightly unlikely quarters. We're also seeing you know Sidewalk Labs, which is a division of Alphabet, the owner of Google, doing um, modeling. There's a company in Australia called Giraffe, which is doing some really interesting 3D modeling and visualization. So we are seeing some competitors come in, both from startup communities and from sectors that are you know complementary and perhaps adjacent to our, our own. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, world that is in terms of from a technology stack. And Meredith, from a KPMG perspective, is are you seeing more cross-fertilisation from your tech part of your business into the built environment sector? As a firm, we've got our own um, innovation solutions venture team that industrialise solutions. However, we do also partner globally. Um, what we've really been focusing on is how we and others can come together as business integrators to bring along the right types of tech to the right types of solution. From an IOTAA perspective, I'd certainly agree with some of the comments of the panel here around tech isn't necessarily, we're not lacking tech. Um, and I think bringing that in from other sectors is something that's really interesting. But Romley touched on something in her presentation, which I think is also quite interesting and important as terms of a KPI and a metric for us as a nation in delivering this. And that was around the percentage of funding that we're actually spending on the knowledge economy specifically. 2.5 billion that was allocated under the this year's economy, equivocally puts us like 10 times less than the country of France spends on digital innovation and technology. So what I guess what I'm trying to draw that down to is we can have these big competitors sorry, we can have the big players in the market, but ultimately the more innovative, creative solutions that we are actually making space for and that we're bringing into the solutions to localise them and to actually build up the economy around us are the ones that I think will be the key to our success. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's going to be, it's going to be more smaller players and more niche players moving forward maybe than necessarily the larger two. But Going back to the, the people perspective, do we, does the panel believe that we need to be do better as a sector and as an industry in communicating the, the value of digital and data to our public 
do you think we do a good enough job? Because I know and I've some of the feedback I've heard from ministers and bureaucrats is in terms of they've had people come in and they've had a technical conversation with a commercial person and that's put them off. Do, do we are we doing a good enough job as a, an industry in communicating this? We're all very pro digital data and social outcomes, strategic objective, but are we are we doing well in this space or do we need to do more? Meredith, are we doing enough? Gavin, I think we're doing terribly. I cannot, yeah, I can't thank you enough for calling this one out. And it's a great call to action. We're amongst friends here now. We are a community of people who many of us have been advocating in this space for years and years and years. And we use words that are jargon, complete barriers that turn people off, that find it confusing. It will never pass the pub test. If you can't explain it to your mother, then we're never going to be able to actually get that business case up or we're never going to be able to really build reform. Of course, it's got to be really underscored by, you know, intelligence, evidence-based technological understanding. But ultimately, I think that we're at the point now in a tipping point, if you will, in the maturity of our sector where we need to be able to communicate the benefits much more broadly and to the individual people who are walking around in the spaces where we are trying to overlay digital technology to monitor, enhance and improve their life. Yeah, I, I use that same term when I run workshops, if you're, if you're unable to communicate this to your mother, you probably need to go away and think a bit harder in terms of your communication, in terms of, because you're right, we, we live in a world of three-letter acronyms, we live in our own, and it's almost a bit of an echo chamber at, at times, and we need to access people, and we need to be able to communicate to people about this as well. So, Henry, what's your view? Do, do you agree with Meredith? I, I do agree with Meredith. I, th I think we're universally very, very bad at communicating benefits and why we should do this. And I think as soon as you mentioned technology, people read a lot of risk into it because historically, and I think Richard mentioned this earlier, IT projects or broadly speaking technology projects have seemed to be troublesome over time, over budget, not delivering what they said. And I think we get a bit tarred by that brush as well. So I think we've somehow got to work our way through that negativity and be much, much better on the way we explain the benefits, not just to our customers, but to society generally. How's this going to make the world a better place for us all and our children to live in? And I think we do a terrible job on that. And you know, when you come from a technology background, it's very easy to get absorbed by the, the technology and forget about why you're actually doing it. Richard, what's, what's your view? Well, I think it's taken years, but I think people get it now. You know, most people will understand the benefits of what we'll call digital transformation. But, you know, it, it's really working one-on-one -on -one and, and within teams on how it benefits them because the benefits actually aren't, you know, specific to any one particular uh, industry or sector. You know, you've got to really uh, work to find them and, and work out what workflow works best for them because the workflows are all different. Uh, the knowledge bases are all different. Um, when we say engineering, it's a very broad sector. You know, I think in, in one uh, sitting in our office, we probably had 300 different subgroups of, of engineers, very uh, different. So, you know, when we talk broadly about infrastructure, we're actually talking about a whole set of, of different challenges that we're trying to broadly implement uh, technology for. And I think that is complicated. And I'd hate to try and explain some of those things to my mother. Um, but, you know, if that's what the test is, then that's uh, quite challenging. 
But, you know, if we're going to get the political class connected with, you know, Treasury into delivering significant chunks of funding into, you know, infrastructure and delivering a platform that, you know, that maybe spans the state or various different regions, then uh, that's what we need to be able to do. Yeah, I was just having a chuckle. Someone's putting it hard to sell if your mother runs CSIRO. <laughs> it's like... So, yeah. Maybe we should use the uh, pub test like as a better. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> maybe maybe a better way of putting it is this is this pub test notion then, because um, Larry Marshall runs CSIRO, so it does apply to your dad as well. Um, but I wouldn't. I think he's probably a different kettle of fish <laughs> than most. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing, the other interesting one, is changing your business model as well. So moving away from a a sort of a time and materials perspective, especially for the big engineering houses, and you're now advocating for greater productivity and efficiency. What's the challenges for for you guys in terms of being able to sort of have perhaps competing business models that are ones that are evolving and ones that are more traditional? Keen to sort of uh, Henry get your view on that. I see you're having a wry smile. Yeah, I think I think you know when you've traditionally come from a, a time-based organisation where everything's measured in fifteen-minute chunks, um, and then you talk about introducing technology that's going to um, displace you know the traditional roles of some of the engineering function, it is very threatening and very very difficult. And yet, yet we've seen the same pattern with every technological innovation from the word processor onwards sort of thing. So this is nothing particularly unusual. It's just that it's hitting our sector um, at this point in time. And it's a very, very difficult transition to make. It requires not just a, a change of the mindset of the people, but from leadership as well. And uh, yeah, we're, we're certainly, I think, on the way of that transition, but it's it's a hard one. And, and you do displace jobs, you do displace people's traditional roles there's no getting around that 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 has been the history of technology you know always that it does that but you create a whole lot of new opportunities a whole lot of new jobs and a whole lot of higher value jobs um, and it's no secret that the engineering profession is under a lot of margin pressure at the same time so the introduction of technology is really in inevitable it's a question of how fast we can affect that transition yeah do we think procurement needs to play a part with that, with that business model? Yeah, absolutely, because a lot of our customers are asking us to price things on an individual, named individual, daily and hourly rate basis. And that goes kind of counter to the whole use of technology. It would be better if the contracts were more performance-based rather mm. than individual human-based. I think that's really a change that we need to see. The IT sector's had that approach for a long time. Engineering is still very much hours, people, time. And how far are we away from that, from KPIs and outcome-based contracting, Meredith? How, how, how far away do you, do you feel that, that we are away from that? Quite a while, I would say, to be honest. I think until we've actually valued the data as an asset properly and, and fairly, then we're not really going to be having a look at the implications that go further, sadly. However, having said that, that is not my area of expertise. So, I mean, that's my broad comment when I look at the various innovations in B2G procurement more broadly. Yeah, the human factor is always going to play, though. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so look, we're coming towards the, the end now. If I can just get one word 
from you each about how you feel next year will be within the smart infrastructure. Richard, I'll, I'll pick on you first, give the others a bit more time to think about one word. I'd say transformative. Yeah, okay, brilliant. Henry? Uh, opportunity. Okay, last but not least, Meredith? Impact. Okay, brilliant. Well, I'd like to thank you all very much for your uh, insights and fantastic uh, conversation. The biggest thing I've probably taken from this is we need to do a hell of a lot more better in terms of how we communicate. I think in terms of that, that's one big takeaway from this, this group, we could all take on as an action in terms of how we can all better communicate the value of digital and data, test that thinking. So I'd like to thank you all very much, Richard, Henry and Meredith. Thank you very much for the opportunity.